Take your Bible, turn to John chapter 11, 45 through 57. This is kind of like an elbow in the text. It's not quite arm, it's not quite hand, it's kind of something in between. But an interesting passage nonetheless. God's word for you today would remind you this is God speaking to you, even as this is read hear God's word. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council And said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people. Not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Let us pray again. Father, we do ask for your help as we approach your word. It is in your word that we see Christ and see your truth and see our shortcomings. And so we ask for your spirit to work within us to illumine our minds that we might see and understand and believe. Lord, our faith is so weak, we ask that you would help us to believe in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. A stopped clock is right twice a day. That's a common phrase. I think most people have probably heard that one. Even a a blind squirrel finds a nut every once in a while. And that's the more kind of, I guess, southern take on the same idea. But we get it, don't we? This idea that, well, even if you have no idea what's going on, you're going to be right sometimes. 
I mean, standardized tests, if you just put C on all of them, you will get some of them correct. You won't know which ones those are, but you will get some of them correct. In this passage here, this, again, kind of elbow of a passage in between two different things, we get one of the great, I mean all-time great, stop clock is right twice a day moments. Where a man who, thinking he's doing one thing, thinking he's headed one way, thinking he means what he's saying, gets it absolutely right. And at the same time, absolutely wrong. One of the great, and I love, it's enshrined in God's word forever and ever. This guy being completely spot on, having no idea that he's missed it. But in order to get to that, we do have to back up a little bit and kind of really cover a little bit of review for the book, but mainly for the chapter previous. John has been telling us the story of Jesus and telling us that he is a man. He's a man just like you or me, a human like us, but at the same time, very different. He's human like you and me, but he's also not human, unlike you and me. He is the very son of God. He's been given this amazing birth that shows his divinity, this divinity that existed prior to creation, for he is the agent of creation. And this one Jesus, the God-man, the Son of God, has come to earth and is living in such a way before people that he is constantly forcing them to respond to him. Will they listen to him? Will they follow him? Will they reject him? Will they turn from him? Will they kill him? Will they arrest him? What will they do? And the whole time, John is building a case. Really, what will we do? And there have been many stories as he's done amazing things throughout the book. He's claimed to be God over and over and over again, but it all comes to a head in chapter 11 into this indisputable, unignorable, inconvenient fact. This man, Jesus, is not simply a moral teacher. He's not simply a wise man. He's not some elegant or eloquent rabbi. No, he is indeed the Lord of life itself. As in the first part of chapter 11, his dear friend Lazarus has perished. He has intentionally waited to make sure Lazarus is dead and not just like half dead. He's fully dead. And he's been dead all day. He's been dead for four days, in fact. And by the time Jesus gets there, it would have been quite stinky. And Jesus goes to the tomb, filled with emotion for his friends, filled with uh, feeling their loss, filled, filled with feeling the loss Lazarus is about to experience. He calls him forth from the tomb. And in doing so, he, he pro- proclaims himself to be the Lord of life. His prayer showcases it all. Right there in front of the tomb, right before he calls Lazarus out, he doesn't go, Lord, I would ask that you would raise Lazarus from the dead. That would be the way that you and I would pray. If we've lost a a spouse or someone very close to us, I'm, I'm sure we probably have prayed that prayer, haven't we? Lord, just bring them back for just a moment. It's interesting, Jesus doesn't pray that prayer. 
His prayer is, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But I said this on account of everybody else listening. That they would believe. And then with his own authority, he calls Lazarus out. He's showing himself to be different from you and me. When I need miracles done, when I need somebody to be healed, when I need the world to be altered, I ask the Lord to do it. Lord, help me in this. Lord, please have our house get finished this week. Lord, please have this thing happen. Please heal this person. Please take care of it. Please do this. Jesus just says, thank you. Thank you for listening to me. And thank you for giving me opportunity to showcase who you are to these people. Now, Lazarus, come out. It's very different. He speaks to Lazarus the way I speak to my children. The only difference is my children are here and Lazarus is dead. Jesus shows himself to be the Lord of life, to have the power over death itself. Something no one else has ever had save God himself. And whereas you might have been able to, I mean, you wouldn't, but you you could have in theory said, well, he's this moral teacher beforehand, or he's maybe a raving lunatic, he belongs in the insane asylum, or, you know, he's like David Blaine, he's like the greatest magician ever, he makes food appear magically, he does these amazing things, I mean, he's the best magician ever. Now something suddenly very different has happened. Incontrovertible, awkward, inconvenient proof shows up. To the point where the guy that everybody knows is dead and has been dead for half a week is now walking and talking and hanging out and eating with his family and going about doing his job. I mean, what's that like at his work the next day? I thought you died last week. No, I did, funny enough. I stayed dead for four days, but I'm back. How did that happen? Doesn't normally happen that way. How did that happen? Well, funny enough, let me tell you about Jesus. You have Lazarus walking and talking and showing what Jesus has done. And this sends ripples throughout the entire culture. In fact, it sends ripples throughout all of time and space. What do we do with Jesus? And we see a response happens very quickly. Verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary, who had seen what he did, believed in him, but some didn't. And you see the great winnowing start, the great dividing, the great separation. You see, John has been highlighting this element to Jesus' ministry from the very beginning, that part of what Jesus does is to unite Christians with each other, but divide them from the world. Part of what John is highlighting is that Jesus has come so that the boundary lines become clearer, not less clear. So that as Jesus' ministry is shown increasingly, increasingly, increasingly clear, people are forced to be divided. To force that point of decision. 
for those of you that drive a car, you know that moment where you were maybe following a truck a little bit more closely than you should. And as you go through the traffic light, you come right up to the line, and that's when you notice that the light is, we'll lovingly put it, deep orange. <laughs> and you have that moment of decision of like, ah, do I slam all my brakes or do I just follow the truck? What am I going to do? In, in essence, John is doing that to us as a reader. He's forcing us constantly to that moment where we're like, okay, I see the stoplight. What am I going to do? How am I going to respond? Am I, am I going to receive it and believe it and live accordingly? Am I going to hate it and loathe it? But the one thing I can't do is nothing. I can't just coast through the intersection. You either accelerate and stay with the truck or you slam on your brakes as hard as you can. The law would say slam on your brakes. And we see it already in the Jews, this great division taking place where some are encountering Christ and saying, look, you're the one the Bible has been telling us about from the very beginning. In Genesis, from the very beginning, it said that God said that he would send someone who would provide a way. The seed of Adam. And that line would be traced throughout all of them so that all of the books tell of this story. All of them do. Genesis tells of the story of Christ being promised in chapter 3 and then promised again to Abraham in 12 and 15 and other places. And then that being promised again to his children, Isaac and Jacob, and it turning into a great nation and this promise building and building. Exodus tells of this promise coming even to a greater thing as the nation is gathered together eventually into Numbers and Deuteronomy. And then we're given the law. The law showing that, look, you people, as wonderful, lovely, handsome, and beautiful, and intelligent as you are, as sophisticated and elegant as you are, you are not perfect. And you need a Savior. Even in history, the history books highlighting that as it tells time and time and time and time again how good people, people that we think have it all figured out, they just make a mess of their lives and it gives us comfort because we do the same. And saying that even in the midst of this mess, there is one coming. And to think how all of the books tell this story kind of start to finish, even the ones that you wouldn't expect. Ruth tells the story of a redeemer that's coming. In fact, actually closing the book with his genealogy so that you know exactly who he's related to. A portion of it, at least. Esther, even. Interestingly, a book that doesn't even mention God's name is telling the story of how God sometimes provides a way when you would least expect it. His providence is so perfectly arranged that he has provided a plan. The prophets tell us of this plan over and over and over again, and Israel rejected it over and over and over again. But the whole story has been building to Christ's arrival, and the Jews are beginning to understand. Some of them, they believe. Now, we don't find out the exact definition of this belief. Is this genuine conversion? Is this kind of like a, I'm indifferent, and then they turn on him later? We don't know. What we do see, we do see a change that happens afterwards. 
where some of them immediately go and they rat out Jesus and this resurrection to the Pharisees. And I find this to be comical. I find this to be unbelievably comical that they go to complain and tattletale for a man who raised someone from the dead. I find it to be hysterical because out of all the people that I think I would want to tattle on, a guy with the ability to raise the dead is probably not the guy I want to cross. And yet they do. They go to the Pharisees and the council, and they tell them, they notify them. And now for us in background, there's two categories of people here that John is talking about, and we probably don't know them quite as well as we should. We have the chief priests, which were largely Sadducees, and your Pharisees. Your Pharisees are your, your legalists. They're ultimately absolutely uber you know, concerned with fulfilling all of God's law, living it perfectly and insanely so. Your Pharisees are your mega liberals. They've kind of given up on the, really the Old Testament. They've kind of given it over and to the point where they don't even believe in resurrection anymore. And so you, now you have this story coming to both of them of Jesus who's not keeping the law the way the Pharisees think that it should and Jesus who's raising people from the dead the way the Sadducees say can't happen and suddenly now everybody's angry. Everybody's angry and they convene the Sanhedrin, the council together with the vast majority of your Sadducees, the minority opinion of your Pharisees And they panic. What a way to do! For this man performs many signs. And I love this showcases in so many ways the beauty of just the simplicity, the fallenness of the human condition. I mean, you have a guy walking around your city with the ability to raise the dead. You have a guy who's proclaimed himself to be God and then demonstrated that he's the Lord of life. And it's interesting that never in their list of options is maybe we should go follow him. Maybe we should stick close to him. Maybe if he's the Lord of life that way, he would share some of that life with me because he obviously has more than I do. I don't have enough life to share. I don't like sharing my life. I prefer to keep it in my body. He's giving it away freely. Yet, interestingly, what do they do? They say, what are we going to do? Let's panic. This man performs many signs, and then they, they nail it right here in some ways. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Well, that is kind of the point. He's the Lord of life. They're supposed to believe in him. The whole Bible has been telling his story up to this point. But then they tip their hand. 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And here they show what's going on in their hearts. They've misread the Old Testament and they're thinking entirely of a political kingdom. They're thinking that God's anointed messenger, this Messiah, This Christ that would come would be a political figure. And he would make Israel great again, in essence. He would show up and defeat the Romans. He'd overthrow all of the evil that Rome was doing. He'd lop off the heads of the bad guys and he would proclaim himself to be king. Now, they are correctly looking at Jesus and saying, one, this guy's kind of not really educated. Two, he's unbearably poor. He's homeless. He doesn't have a place to lay his head. If his followers don't provide housing for him, he sleeps out in, you know, in the streets or in the fields. He has nothing. He has no possessions. His followers are uneducated 
ignorant fools. They do not have much of anything. He is not a military figure. He has no idea how to command troops. He is, for just every sign, he is incompetent at military might. Now, they have fallen for the most spectacular Trojan horse of all time, where the Son of God has put on flesh. And they're like, oh, look, it's a horse. It looks just like a person. And they're missing the fact that there's divinity in their midst. But they're so concerned with their own position. They're so concerned with their own little uh, values, their own little uh, desirabilities, their own little culture. They're so concerned with their own lifestyle, their own power, their own position. What are we going to do? If he continues, everyone will believe in him. He will whip them up into a frenzy and then the Romans will come and kill us all. And you know, in fact, actually, they are right about that. If the people do get excited in this way, Rome does know that's not acceptable and will come in and kill them and destroy them all. In fact, actually, it happens in 76 AD. They get whipped up into such a frenzy that Titian gets sent in and obliterates Rome. It's a bit of a mess. I mean, obliterates Jerusalem. It's a bit of a mess. Destroys the temple, tears it down, all except for the Wailing Wall. They're exactly right in that regard, but they've misunderstood who they're talking about. They've misunderstood Jesus and his person. They've misunderstood it all. And then you have Caiaphas coming in with, I think, again, one of my favorite sentences coming from the mouth of an unbeliever. First, he, he interrupts the group. He's the high priest. He's the boss. He's the moderator of the assembly here. He's the guy who had been running the show. And he chimes in with this just elegant interruption in verse 49. His elegant interruption is this. You know nothing at all. Not particularly a, cl- a classy gentleman here. We'll just put it that way. He, he interrupts them rudely with no taste. You know nothing at all. And then verse 50, he comes to articulate the gospel as accurately and beauti- beautifully and succinctly as you will find anywhere in the scriptures. You don't know anything at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And he, he, he's explaining what he thinks should happen. Now, it's interesting how he means it. He means it as, guys, you're not thinking clearly. All we have to do to get Rome off our backs is murder Jesus. It's a very simple arrangement. We know how to make bodies disappear. We've done it before. We can actually use Rome to make it happen. We kill one man and Rome is happy. The nation is preserved. John highlights the irony here, though. He he highlights how right Caiaphas is, but meaning it incorrectly in verse 51. He didn't say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he's prophesying that Jesus would die for the nation. Caiaphas doesn't get it. He doesn't understand what he's saying, but listen to what he actually says. It's better that one man die for the many than the many die for themselves. That, That is the heart of the gospel. It is better that Christ would die on the cross to pay for the sins of his people than for all of us to die in our own sin, to die in our own trespasses, to die in the wrath we deserve. 
The stop clock is right twice a day, and Caiaphas nails it. He absolutely nails it. I mean, he doesn't mean it, but he nails it. It is better that one should die instead of the nation perishing. It is better that Christ would die as an intercessor, a mediator, so that my sins could be paid for. Not only for one nation, not only for the Jews, verse 52. He prophesied unintentionally that this would gather all of the children of God who are scattered abroad. It would gather all of us into one church so that whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free, we would be one in Christ. (laughs) And after nailing it so spot on, verse 53, so from that day on they determined to put him to death. You see, this is what John is building us to. He, he's introduced Christ to us throughout the book. He's presented it in a way in which we are required to respond. Will we ignore him? Will we obey him? Will we receive him? What will we do? Now he's even further intensified it by showing what Jesus is actually doing. He's going to die for a nation. Not Israel. Geographically. But the people of Israel, he's going to die for his saints. He's coming to die for you and me and for all who call on his name. Now, I love that the story doesn't stop here because that's where you think it would stop. They sought to put him to death. Da, da, da. Tension sets in and then you kind of move to the next chapter. But rather, actually, it doesn't stop there. It displays the confidence that Christ has in the plan that God has ordained. The arrangement of the Trinity, their inner Trinitarian covenant arranged far before the creation of the world. Jesus knows that they're going to try to kill him, so therefore he no longer walks openly. He doesn't go prancing around because he knows they're trying to kill him and it's not time for him to die yet. We find out that he dies in the fullness of time and time is not yet full. So instead, he goes out into the country, he disappears to build the frenzy, to build the excitement level, to build the buzz in the city. Now, some of you have lived in big cities, and you know that moment. You can tell the difference between a a normal day in this city and a day where something's happening. When I was a youth pastor, I took a mission team to uh, London and Wales, actually. We're headed to Wales. Um, We landed in London uh, in the middle of summer, and then we're going to stay for a couple, four days, and then head out to Wales to minister with the church there and to uh, help them with their various things and such. We landed, got on the bus, and uh, start driving through London. And I've spent a couple of months in London over my life, you know, and uh, riding in the back with one of the older men in the in the team. And I'm looking around and like begin to notice just something's not right. Like the city feels wrong. It feels like this city took a fork and stuck it in the light socket. Something's not right. I can't can't tell you what it is. There's nothing that I can look at and see. I could just tell you that something was wrong. And after maybe 15 minutes, 20 minutes driving through the city, I walk back to the other man who had spent time there. And I just looked at him. I said, something's wrong, isn't it? And he said, yeah, I don't know what, but I can feel it. The energy, the excitement is off. 
turns out three hours previously there had been bombings all throughout the city and we didn't know yet because it had happened while we were on the plane. One of them was about a half a block from our hotel. Jesus is in essence accomplishing the same thing in Jerusalem. He steps away to Ephraim and as Passover comes, the energy in the city just intensifies. So that when he does have his triumphal entry in the next chapter, they will be excited to try to crown him king. And then after he goes there and they try to crown him, he goes to the temple, he cleanses it, he runs away again, they get mad at him, and that that fury, that intensity would become the fuel that they would use to kill him. Well, what do we do with a passage like this? Again, it's an elbow kind of passage. It's, it's not one or the other. It's not a Lazarus passage. A, Yay, Jesus is Lord of life. I don't have to be afraid of death because I know that he will raise me. It's not the next chapter. Oh, I should, or the next passage. Oh, I should worship Jesus. He's worth worshiping. It's an it's a in-between passage, an elbow. What do I do with this? Well, I would say one is, again, John is using this to intensify that pressure on us as a reader to say, how will I respond to Christ? How will I respond? Am I going to be ambivalent? Am I going to be all in? Am I going to hate him? Am I going to try to get rid of him for my life? How will I respond to Christ? But even as that question is being asked, it's also showing the futility of fighting against him. We all know that moment in the cartoons where, you know, the, one of the characters gets ready to run and the feet all start turning, but the character doesn't go anywhere. It's all sound and fury signifying nothing. There's all this motion, but no actual, like, progress has made this. In essence, that's what the Jews do here. They get all worked up into a fury and they don't actually accomplish anything. Why? Because Jesus is in charge. You may have noticed we've been singing and order of worship has been structured around this theme of persecution because they're going to kill Christ. This is the time they actually decide it. Where they say, we will reject him. He will not be ours. And the reality of that matter is that is extended to his people. Now, we have this nation been very blessed for many, many years to live in a country in which Christianity has been either endorsed or tolerated. But the reality of the matter is true biblical Christianity will never stay popular for long because it makes claims on truth and it makes claims on your life that must be answered. And the result of it is it may stay popular for a time in a nation, but it will eventually fade as the flesh takes over. We may be, sadly, the ones who get to watch that happen in our nation, but certainly a reality that will be coming. And the dividing line. The dividing line is always there, isn't it? What will you do with Christ? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word. We ask that you would forgive us for our sin. We ask that we would be transformed by Christ and that you would give us faith in him. For Christ's sake, amen.